today we'll get the big picture of 2 Corinthians. Just like 1 Corinthians, God used the Apostle Paul to write this letter. This is his second letter to the church at Corinth. When was it written? Most likely, it is a debatable issue, but most likely in the year 55 A.D. Some people don't know where Corinth is. If you're geographically challenged, I put a map on the screen here for you. Uh, Corinth is in modern-day Greece. So if you know where Athens, Greece is, Corinth is not far from Athens. It was kind of in between Sparta and Athens. It's located there in modern-day Greece. Why is the Apostle Paul writing? What's the occasion and purpose of this? Well, you need to understand something, that there was a group of men that had come to Corinth who were pretending to be apostles. They weren't, but they were pretending to be. And and in fact, they were actually false teachers. And they were challenging Paul's integrity as well as Paul's authority as a real apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, of course, was deeply concerned for this church, as he was for all the true churches. And so he wanted to encourage them. This is supposed to be an encouraging letter, and that's why... Uh, one of the key words, or some of the key words in the book are the words comfort and encouragement. You'll see those words a lot in this book, comfort and encouragement. And so in spite of all the various trials that Paul was experiencing, Paul was able to write a letter that was saturated with encouragement. So as we look at this, I hope you're going to walk away today being encouraged as I have been in studying this book. Well, you might ask the question then, what was Paul's secret of victory when he was experiencing such pressures and trials in his own life? And they were great trials and pressures. He he even talks about them right here in this first chapter. We'll look at that in a moment. But if you you look at, uh, was it, um, anyway, we'll look at it later. But the secret is just simply was God. God. He believed in God. And so when you find yourself discouraged and you feel like quitting, you're just ready to give up, you know what you need to do? you got to get your attention off yourself and put your attention on God. And that's what Paul did. He focused on God. So out of his very difficult experience, Paul tells us how we can find encouragement in God. Right here, in, in fact, in the very first chapter, we we got this important question, how can you find comfort? How can you find comfort? Well, it all has to do with God. So we'll look at uh, number one here. We see you have to remember what God is to you. That's what Paul does here in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. So after his little introduction, notice what he's doing here. He's focusing on God reminding himself, telling these people who God is. And so he's beginning his letter with a doxology, which, by the way, that's just a praise to God. He certainly could not sing about his circumstances. They weren't very good circumstances. But he could sing about the God who's in control of his circumstances. Do you see the difference? Paul had learned that praise is an important factor in achieving victory over discouragement and depression and despair. So he focused on who God is. Number two, remember what God does for you. If you want to find comfort, you have to remember 
what God does for you. Again, look at verse 4 here, because it says that God comforts us in all our affliction. Jump down to verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You have to remember what God does for you. He is the God of all comfort. There are several things we see in this text. But number one, I want you to notice that God permits the trials to come into your life. God is the one who permits those trials to come. Now, this isn't on the screen, but I'm just, it's in the text, okay? God's in charge. He is the one who rules over all the things who ha- that happen in your life. So that means that God's in control of trials, verse 8 says. He's in control of those trials. Paul understood that, and that was, that was a comfort. It was encouraging to him. Number three, God enables us to bear our trials, verse 9 says. So not only God's sending it, he's in charge, but he helps you to bear those trials. And then number four, God delivers us from our trials. Maybe not immediately, but ultimately God delivers us from our trials. Certainly he does through Jesus, verse 10 says. And then verse 11 tells us that God is glorified through our trials. So everything that happens in your life is for two reasons. It's for your good and God's glory. That's why God does that. And we can rejoice in those truths. So remember what God does for you. Number three, remember what God does through you. God has a purpose for your life. If he didn't, he would take you to heaven. But he has a purpose. Look at verse four. Because it says that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. You need to remember what God is doing through you. Did you see why God gives you affliction? God is comforting you in your affliction so you can help other people as they go through their afflictions and trials and sufferings. So the question I have for you is this. Are you yielding to the Holy Spirit's control in your life so that God can use you? Or are you resisting? Are you fighting Him? Or what kept Paul from failing? What kept Paul from committing suicide? (laughs) He, He was struggling. 
he was really struggling. He, he said even himself that we despaired of life itself. It was a hard trial of affliction. So what kept Paul from failing? Well, other people facing these same crises probably would have collapsed under the weight. But Paul not only triumphed over the circumstances, but we see in this letter that, that out of these circumstances, these horrible situations, he, he produced a great letter that even today continues to be a blessing to God's people. And we see how God's people experience victory despite difficult circumstances. So the second major question we want to answer from the text is this. What were the spiritual resources that kept Paul going? Why didn't he give up? What, how did he do this? Well, it wasn't in and of himself. <laughs> and by the way, as you look at this, the, the same things that help Paul is the same things that can help you and me. All right, number one, what was the spiritual resources that kept Paul going? Well, Paul says, number one, it was a clear conscience. A clear conscience. And you say, what's, what is a conscience? Well, your conscience is something God has, has given you. He created it in you. It's the inner faculty within you that bears witness to God's law. It's what tells you what's right and wrong. Think of it as a warning light on the dashboard of your car, right? If you're driving your car along and, and all of a sudden there's a warning light that starts flashing and some cars might even start beeping at you and start making noises and the car's saying, hey, fix me, I have a problem. <laughs> That's kind of like your conscience, if you will. When you have a problem and you're doing wrong, God has given you a conscience to say, hey, that's wrong, that's sin, don't do that. The problem is we can sear our consciences, but notice in the text here, as Paul talks about his clear conscience, we've got to ask, look at this. When you have a clear conscience, number one, you're going to live as if Jesus is returning. Do you believe that? That Jesus is returning? Yes, he is. Look what Paul says in verse 12. Verse 12, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understood, and I hope you will, find, you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. You see that? If you have a clear conscience, you're going to live as if Jesus is returning. You're going to be ready, loving the thought of his return. Number two, if you have a clear conscience, you're going to be, you, you will be serious about God's will. You'll be very serious about God's will, as Paul was. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea? Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, he wasn't vacillating, he wasn't wavering. He was, 
he seriously cared about God's will. Number three, if you have a clear conscience, you glorify Jesus. Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen, or truly, to God for his glory. See that? It's for his glory. So if you have a clear conscience, you glorify Jesus. And number four, if you have a clear conscience, you'll be on good terms with the Holy Spirit. You will be on good terms with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. As Paul goes on in this letter, he discusses a particular church member. We're not sure if it's the same one he mentioned in 1 Corinthians or not, but there was a church member that caused Paul a great deal of pain. Paul talks about how he responds to this. Some people might want to get even or even get ahead and cause this individual pain. But Paul didn't do that. Paul loved this individual, even though... This individual is causing him great pain. And he talks about that in this next part. So he, he, he mentions his second spiritual resource that kept him going here was a compassionate heart. Compassionate heart. I want you to note the evidences of Paul's love here in chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, he's, we see that love puts others first. Love puts others first. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. You see, love puts others first. Number two, love seeks to help others grow. Love wants to see others grow. Look at verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one... This punishment by the majority is enough. He was concerned about this one who had caused him pain. Number three, we see that love forgives and encourages. Love forgives and encourages. Look at verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's what love does. And so if, if you want to keep going, as Paul did, 
number one, you've got to have a clear conscience. But you also need a compassionate heart. And number three, you need a conquering faith. You need a conquering faith. That is an important spiritual resource. We see in verse 14 that Paul was sure God was leading him. And that it was a comfort. It was an encouragement to him. Look at verse 14. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Pause. (laughs) Do you see Paul's assurance here? His confidence is in God, that God was the one leading him? Number two, Paul was sure God was not only leading him, but leading him in triumph, in victory. We see that there in verse 14. Leads us in triumphal procession. And Paul was, number three, he was sure God was using him. Isn't that a blessing? That God uses sinners like me. (laughs) That's amazing, isn't it? He uses sinners like me. Look at verse 14. The end of verse 14 says, Through us spread the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is, suffer- who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Three spiritual resources that Paul mentions here. Let me make sure you understand what they are. Number one, he had a clear conscience. Number two, a compassionate heart. And number three, a conquering faith. There was many, many reasons for discouragement in Paul's situation. But did he quit? No, praise God, he did not quit. And why? Why didn't he quit? Well, he knew what he possessed in Jesus Christ. He had wonderful spiritual resources. And so instead of complaining about what he didn't have, instead of viewing life through through a, a, a glass half empty, he said, I'm going to view life from a glass half full. Do you see the difference? One chooses to, to look at the air and what you don't have. The other chooses to look at what you do have. It changes your whole perspective on life. Paul chose to look at his glass half full. Instead of complaining about what he didn't have, Paul rejoiced in what he did have. And you know what, my friends? You and I can do the same thing. We can focus on what we do have in Christ. We have a lot to be thankful for. Well, let's move on to our third major question. What kept Paul from giving up in the conflicts? Besides these spiritual resources, there's some other things that kept Paul going particularly in the ministry and the church planting and all that he was involved in. We see in chapter 4, he had a glorious ministry that transformed lives. When you're involved in people's lives and you see their lives transformed, that helps to keep you going. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God We do not lose heart. How are you not going to lose heart? Well, you're not going to do it by looking at the glass half empty. He chose to look 
at this glorious ministry, Transformed Lives. And, and if you want to know more about that, you have to read chapter 3. He talks about this glorious ministry where lives were transformed. So what kind of a ministry was that? Well, it was a, it was a kind that where uh, men were being saved, women were being saved, salvation, righteousness. It was a ministry that was able to transform men's lives. This ministry, by the way, was a gift. It's something that, that Paul received from God. It's something you and I received from God. It's given to us because of God's mercy. Did you see that? Chapter 4, verse 1. Because of God's mercy. It's not because of anything we are or we have done. And so, my friends, you need to understand something. The way we look at our ministries helps to determine how we're going to fulfill those ministries. How do you see them? Do you see them as gifts of God's mercy? I hope you do. Well, what kept Paul from giving up? Number two, we see that he had a valuable treasure that he wanted to share. He had a very valuable treasure he wanted to share. Look at verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. The jars of clay is his body. And he goes on to say, To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Do you see that? You and I are just jars of clay. That's all we are. We are not the treasure. Paul was not the treasure. He just says, there's a treasure within me that I want to share with others, and that helps to keep me going. <laughs> it helps keep me going. And so the important thing, by the way, the important thing, a jar or a vessel, the important thing is not the clay. But the important thing for a jar or a vessel is that it remain clean, that it be empty and available for service. How about you? Are you clean, empty, and available for service? That's what God wants you to be. What kept Paul from giving up? Number three, he had a confident faith that conquered fear. A confident faith that conquered fear. I want you to note the assurances that Paul has here. Starting in verse 14, he was sure of ultimate victory. Verse 14 says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. My friends, that's assurance. That's confidence. Not in himself, but in God. He had a confident faith. It was conquering this fear because he knew he had ultimate victory in Jesus Christ. Number two, he was sure that God would be glorified. Look at verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You see that? He was sure God was going to be glorified through him and these horrible circumstances and even through the church of Corinth. Number three, he was sure his trials were working for him. 
Look what he says in verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Wow. That's awesome. He knew his trials were working for his good, not only for God's glory, but even for his own good. And number four, he was sure this invisible world was real. How about you? Do you believe there's an invisible world that's real? Look what Paul says in verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. In other words, they're just passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. You believe there's things you can't see that are real? You better. You better because there's a lot of things you can't see and they are real. Just as real as you are. So he had a confident faith that conquered fear. Number four, what kept Paul from giving up? Well, he had a future hope. He had a future hope. By the way, so do you. If you're a believer, you have a future hope. And look what Paul says, chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent, that is, our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Pause. Go down to verse 8. Verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you you believe that when you die, as the Bible says, absent from the body means you're present with the Lord Jesus Christ? Your spirit goes, if you're a believer, your spirit goes to be immediately with Jesus Christ. Paul knew that. He had a future hope. And guess what? Every Christian has these same possessions that Paul had. You have them if you're a Christian. Therefore, you can find courage when you face life's conflicts. Well, as Paul goes on, he gives us some right motives for ministry. And these are important to think about because you want to do the right thing, but you want to do it with the right motives. So what are the motives that Paul had as he was serving God? What are the right motives for ministry? Number one is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord motivated Paul. By the way, the only person and thing you should fear is God. There is nothing else worthy of our fear than God himself. Look what Paul says, chapter 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. My friends, every believer is going to stand at this court here. You will stand before the judge of the universe, that's Jesus, and you will be judged for what you did here on earth, whether it was good or evil, whether it was things of eternal value, or were they just temporary? Were they a wasted life? I hope not. The fear of the Lord is the proper motivation. 
for ministry. Every Christian should examine his, only, his, his life. You should examine your life regularly to see if you're ready for the judgment that Jesus is going to give one day. And so wanting to give a good account before Christ is a worthy motive for Christian service. But that wasn't the only motive that Paul had. Number two, the love of Christ was the second motive. He loved Christ. Christ loved him. But uh, look what it says in verse 14. Verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ motivated Paul to do everything he did. By the way, that phrase, love of Christ, in your Bible there, it means His love for us. Particularly God's love for us as it's seen, notice in the context, it's, it's seen in Jesus' love as He came to this earth. Lived the perfect life, died the perfect sacrifice, but He rose again conquering Satan and death and sin. It's seen in His sacrificial death. He loved us, by the way, when you and I were unlovely. Jesus didn't love you when you were good, but when you were ungodly. (laughs) You are an ungodly sinner, but yet the Bible says Jesus loved you. So when He died on the cross, He proved that love. And that was the right motivation for Paul. But that's not the only motivation in this text. There's also the commission of Christ motivated Paul. Paul was motivated by the commission of Christ. He had a job to do. He had a ministry to accomplish that was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, and that includes you, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, notice you have a ministry, just as Paul did, a ministry of reconciliation. How does this doctrine of reconciliation motivate us to serve Christ? I hope it does, anyway. Well, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And with that, that, that responsibility and that privilege, you have been given a message. God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation, making people who are enemies at one with God. <laughs> That's what God is accomplishing. And so since Christians are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, this means that the world then is in rebellion against God. They're not on His side. The world on the whole is against Christ. They don't love Him. And so He sent His ambassadors into the world to declare peace, that they might know the Prince of Peace. 
And so we represent the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And so if sinners reject us and our message, who are they really rejecting? Are they rejecting you or do they reject Jesus? If they reject His message, they reject Him. It's a great privilege to be heaven's ambassadors. Paul goes on and he gives some characteristics of gospel ministry. What are some characteristics of gospel ministry? Well, he only gives two here in this text. Notice in chapter 6, verse 3, the first one he gives is an important characteristic of gospel ministry is that it must be blameless. And that means you and I, as ministers of the gospel, must be blameless. Look what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Notice, no fault. That means you're blameless. And why is that important? Because if you can, if someone can find fault with you, they'll attempt to find fault with God. That's the problem. So one of the greatest obstacles that we have to the progress of the gospel in this world is there's a lot of ambassadors of Jesus Christ who give the wrong opinion of the King of Kings. They're giving the wrong opinion of God. And sometimes you and I give the wrong opinion of God. And they don't, they don't believe Jesus' message because we're bad ambassadors. That's the reality. There's a lot of people who claim to be Christian, but they don't live like it, they don't talk like it, they don't act like it. They profess to be a Christian, but they're not. Paul was very careful because he didn't want the ministry to be discredited by his life, by his actions. So I ask you, my friends, how about you? Are you blameless? That doesn't mean you're perfect. None of us are perfect. But when the world starts slinging mud and throwing mud at you, hopefully it's not sticking. Number two, second characteristic of the gospel ministry is separation. Separation. In other words, you're not to be just like the world. If you're a Christian, your state and, and, and your life is different from the world. It must be distinct because God is holy. So look at what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? These are all rhetorical questions, by the way. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, that's plural, we, the church, are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and, do not, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 
since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. My friends, we must separate from sin. But that's not enough. When you separate from sin, you have to separate unto God. You have to separate unto God. However, sometimes in our desire for purity, we must not become so self-centered that we ignore the needy world around us. Okay? You're not to become isolated from the world. Jesus said, be in the world, just don't be of the world. You see the difference? Isolation is not godliness. Okay? The separation here is, is in your heart primarily. And so one of the major ministries of Paul's third missionary journey was the taking up of a special relief offering for the poor Christians in Israel. And Paul's going to talk about that here in a moment. And so unfortunately, though, the Corinthians, they weren't doing their part. Paul wanted them to do their part, but they weren't. They weren't contributing to this important offering for the poor Christians in Israel. And so Paul taught them that giving was an act of grace. God enables us to give. Look at these important principles we find here. So let me ask you this, this question as we look at these principles. How can you tell when your giving is motivated by grace? How can you tell? How can you tell when your giving is motivated by grace? Well, chapter 8 is very important here. Here's the first way you know. When we give in spite of circumstances. When we give in spite of circumstances. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Pause. <laughs> Do you see the equation here that just doesn't add up? <laughs> it's amazing. Think about this formula. Think about it as a math formula. You have great affliction, deep poverty, right? Affliction and poverty you would think that equals nothing, right? That's what you would expect the Bible to say. That, that they, they, you, would, you would expect the Bible to say they couldn't give anything for the special offering. But is that what it says? No. It says they had abundant joy and they were very liberal in their giving. They, had, they were abundantly giving from their resources. How is that possible? Well, that's because of God's grace. See, the equation goes like this. Great affliction and deep poverty plus God's grace equals abundant joy and liberal giving. That's an interesting equation, isn't it? Well, let's look at some of the other principles we see here. How, how is this grace giving possible? Well, uh, number two, when we give enthusiastically. God wants us to give enthusiastically. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us. They were begging Paul to, they wanted to give more. 
begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Whoa. <laughs> That's awesome. Not only, not only were they just giving, some people are very miserly, you know, they're like Ebenezer Scrooge, you know. They, they, they don't want to give, and if they do give, they're really grumpy about it. Well, these people weren't grumpy. They were enthusiastic. And number three, when we, we, we see grace giving here when we give as Jesus gave. Are you giving as Jesus gave? You've got to ask the question, well, how did Jesus give? Well, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5, which says, And this, not, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know, what do they know? They know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. They, they gave as Jesus gave. And number four, you, you understand grace giving when you give willingly. When you give willingly. Look at verse 10. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. You have to give willingly. And then number five, you'll understand grace giving when we give by faith. By faith. Look at verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. My friends, this is exciting when you start to understand the principles of grace giving. So have you discovered the thrill of grace giving? It is a thrill. It's exciting. And sometimes it's, it, it's a lot of fun. I've done this several times where, where I, give, I give to God for for some offering or, uh, you know, help somebody in some way or whatever it might be. And I have no idea how God is going to meet my needs. I know I have a need over here, and I, I may have had money set aside for some need. I go, God lays on my heart to give that money to Him, and I don't know how, how okay, how is He going to provide for my needs? I, I need that. But then I give it, and God does exactly what He just said there. He abundantly supplies. <laughs> it is... It is awesome to see God work. I encourage you, test God in that way by faith. 
It is fun. It's exciting. Let's move on. You say, well, how in the world did Paul encourage the church to give like this? Well, look, we see that in chapter 9. We see how he encouraged the church to give. Number one, he told them your giving is going to inspire others. Your giving will inspire others. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And the answer is yes. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And the answer is yes. Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And again, the answer is yes. Verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? What's the answer? The answer is yes. Verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord, and Cephas, or Peter? Your giving is going to inspire others, he says. Paul had used the zeal of the Corinthians to challenge the church in Macedonia, and now Paul's using the Macedonians to challenge the Corinthians. And so you see, you see the principle here? If you're a zealous Christian, you can aspire or inspire other people to give to God's work. Let me encourage you to be zealous for the Lord. Number two, he told them your giving will bless you. That, that's not why we do it, but it, it's kind of a fringe benefit. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Oh, sorry, I'm in, the, I'm in the wrong book of the Bible here. No wonder it didn't make sense what I was reading earlier. Anyway, chapter 9, verse 6. He says, the, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's awesome. (laughs) In grace giving, I hope you understand, our, our motive is not to get something. But... Receiving God's blessing here is one of the fringe benefits. If our giving is to bless us, we have to follow the principles that we see in the text. Let me just quickly throw a few other principles that are here. Number one, your harvest is proportionate to the seed you sow. That's obvious, isn't it? If you want to harvest in your vegetable garden, you have to go plant some seed. Right? Don't expect to get vegetables if you didn't plant any seeds. It's kind of obvious, but that, that point applies to our lives, our spiritual lives. And number two, your motive in giving has to be to please God. have to have the right motive. 
And then three, your life is a channel through which God works to meet others' needs. God can use you, and He wants to use you. So how did Paul encourage the church to give? Number three, he told them your giving will meet needs. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Number four, he told them your giving will glorify God. Your giving will glorify God. Look at verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Number five, he told them your giving will unite God's people. Your giving will unite God's people. Look at verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Isn't that awesome that even people who don't even know you sometimes pray for you? That's kind of what's going on here. People don't even know us sometimes pray for us. How is that even possible? It's because of God's grace. He unites His people together. So how much do you believe in grace giving? I hope you do. Paul's ministry was a difficult ministry. Why was it difficult? Well, if you haven't figured that out by now, you need to understand Paul's writing to a divided church, a church that had a lot of problems, a church that was resisting his authority. It was a church that was being seduced by false teachers. These false teachers had come in claiming to be Christ's apostles when they weren't, and yet they're trashing the very one who was one of Christ's apostles. That was a trying time in the church's life and in Paul's life. And so Paul takes the last chapters here to defend his ministry. And he defends it in in three different lights. And I'm getting this from Dennis Mock in his New Testament survey book. So chapters 10 through 13, the end of the book here, is, is all about Paul defending his ministry. Ultimately, it has to do with God. But look at this. We see, number one here, that How did Paul defend his ministry in regard to his authority? Where's this authority coming from? Well, Paul told them he was called by God. He was called by God. Look at chapter 10, verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Over and over again, Paul says, I was made an apostle by Jesus Christ. It was by God's will that I am an apostle. (laughs) He was called by God. Number two, Paul told them he was commanded by God to preach. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel, he says. And number three, Paul consistently taught these people, whether he was there in person or if he did it by letter. By the way, there's even letters Paul sent to Corinth that that are not inspired scripture that we don't have today. They were not written by the Holy Spirit, but as you and I write letters, Paul wrote to them as often as he could to encourage and comfort them. And we we see a little bit of this in chapter 10, verse 11. He says, Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. He loved these people, despite all of their problems. This was a messed up church, 
just like we're a messed up church. He loved them anyway. He did what he could to help them. So Paul defended his ministry in regard to authority. And number two, let's see how Paul defended his ministry in regard to actions. Paul gave up his right to be paid. He should have been paid by these people. Look what he says in chapter 11, verse 7. Chapter 11, verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? By the way, what's the answer to that rhetorical question? He should have been paid. He deserved it. The Bible says so. He earned it by preaching the gospel and helping these people. But he gave up that right. And that was a defense of his ministry. Number two, Paul suffered unjustly for Christ's sake. He suffered horribly. (laughs) Paul mentions some of the things he, he went through here. Look at chapter 11, verse 24. Chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Wow. That's just the things he mentioned. That's a rough life. (laughs) But you know what? Those actions that you see, see there are justifying and defending his ministry. He suffered unjustly for Christ's sake. Number three, Paul handled enormous pressure from the church. On top of all that other stuff, look what he says in verse 28. Apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then number four, Paul combated deception and false teaching, which he does in every single book he ever, God ever used him to write in your Bible. He's constantly combating deception and false teaching. And through that, Paul defended his ministry in regard to actions. Number three, Paul also defended his ministry in regard to attitude. So he had, it, he had it all. He defended it in regard to authority, his actions, and his attitude. Look how he does it in regard to attitude here. Paul was weak in himself, but he was strong in Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful passage. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, a demon, is what he's talking about. The messenger is an angel. In this case, it's an evil angel sent from Satan that God was using to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How did Paul defend his ministry in regard to attitude? Number two, almost done. Hold on, almost done. Number two, Paul had a selfless spirit of service. He had a selfless spirit of service. Look at verse 14. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He had a selfless spirit. Number three, Paul had a mindset. His mindset was this, to build others up to encourage them in the faith. Look what he says in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. That's why he's doing this. For their sakes. And then number four, Paul sought for unity with all. He wanted this church to be unified. So they would bring God glory and honor. Look at chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Unity, so important. How is that even possible? Well, if you walk away from here with nothing else, remember this applicational message from Dennis Mock. All right? How do I apply this book to my life? All right? Here it is. It's on the screen. I quote, We should walk by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, ministering in integrity, holiness, humility, truth, and love, seeking to proclaim Christ and please Him. End quote. Well, let's end by looking at this benediction. Look at the very last verse. This is, here. this is how Paul ends, and this is how we'll end. Look at the very last verse in this book of the Bible. Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. My friends, this verse gives the solution for a troubled church. This verse gives the solution for a messed up church. Every church on planet Earth is a messed up church. How is there any hope? For us, this is the hope. This is the hope. It starts with every believer depending on God's grace. Number two, you have to walk in the love of God. Number three, participate in the fellowship of the Spirit. And if you put all those three together, that's how a troubled, messed up, sinful church can be united and bring God glory. Isn't that awesome? And if you do that, you know what? You're going to be a part of the answer instead of a part of the problem. The problem is, too often we blame shift. We point our fingers at other people and say, man, that person's messed up. They're a sinner. And we just start blame shifting. And they're the problem, not me. And No, point the finger at yourself. Sort yourself out with God. Depend on His grace. Walk in the love of God. Participate in the fellowship of the Spirit. 
You won't be a part of the problem. You'll be a part of the solution. And you're going to live out this benediction. May God help us. Let's pray.